Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. So, how are those New Year's resolutions going? I'm not going to ask you that every week this year, but we're just one weekend, so I was just kind of curious. Have you made progress, or have you already given up? It's difficult to make changes in our lives, and that is why New Year's resolutions are indeed hard to keep. But what I want to talk to you about today, I am confident that no one put on their to-do list. I'm confident that none of you included this on your New Year's resolutions in spite of the fact that it is a quality that is seen in Scripture. It is a quality that is necessary for entrance into the kingdom of God. In other words, this is an essential quality for every believer. In fact, we're going to see that over the next three weeks, today and two more Sundays. We're going to see three things that I'm confident you didn't add on your resolution list, and yet they are all essential. And two of the three, not today, but the next two weeks, are not only seen in Scripture, but they are modeled by Jesus. You are familiar with the online hashtag, hashtag blessed. Some of you may have sweatshirts with that on it or other items in your home that say that. And that's just a way of saying that whatever's going on in your life, all of the good things that are transpiring, especially if you put this online, it's a way for you to say that you believe your life is blessed by God. And you want everyone to know it, of course, because what good is it if no one else knows it? But the question then is this, who gets to determine what is a blessed life? Who gets to decide what it takes for you and I to be hashtag blessed? Is it our decision to make such that we determine if things are going well in our lives, then we can see that, say that, or is that up to God to decide? Is it for God to determine what makes a blessed life? Well, today we're starting the Sermon on the Mount. It is found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And of course, the first section, probably the most familiar section, is the section called the Beatitudes. And they begin with that word, blessed. Now, there are five teaching sections throughout the Gospel of Matthew, and this is the first, the longest, and probably the most familiar. The others are found in chapter 10, that is when Jesus is commissioning the apostles, And then in chapter 13, there is a series of parables, parables of the kingdom, some of which we looked at in our recent parable series. In chapter 18, we find the fourth section of discourse or teaching, and that is Jesus' teaching on the childlikeness of the believer. 
And then the fifth, and probably the second most famous in Matthew's gospel, is what we sometimes call the Olivet Discourse. It's in chapters 25 or, and 24, I said that backwards, and it's called the Olivet Discourse because it was given on the Mount of Olives, and it refers to end-time events. But today we're starting the first discourse in Matthew's gospel, and of course we are starting it with the Beatitudes. And we're going to see from verses five, 1 through 3 this morning the spiritual poverty that is necessary to be in the kingdom of God. And that's why I said the likelihood is you did not say when you thought of your goals and resolutions for the new year, I want spiritual poverty. But that is what you need and that is what is necessary in order to be part of the kingdom of God. Now, as long as we understand that spiritual poverty does not mean immaturity. I am not saying that we ought to be children in the kingdom of God. Now, we have to come into the kingdom like children, but we are not to remain there. Neither am I saying that spiritual poverty means that we ought not to be growing in our relationship with the Lord. Surely you know that's not the case because we talk about that rather often. That sanctification is the growing process whereby every believer ought to be making progress spiritually in our spiritual lives. So what do I mean by spiritual poverty? Well, that's what we're going to talk about the rest of this morning. So look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. These beatitudes are going to be easy to memorize. I know we did that in the three statements that we looked at in December. It's not something I often do, but these Beatitudes are in a format that they are easy to memorize. But while they are easy to memorize, they are very difficult to practice. In fact, as much as we are called the Bible Belt, as much as we like to think about our biblical knowledge in this part of the country, I dare say the application of the Beatitudes does not match what we think is our understanding of Scripture. Because these things are so countercultural, and they are even, in a sense, counter-Christian, though they shouldn't be, and therefore they are going to come across to us as somewhat odd and certainly difficult to practice. But let's jump in. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that's of course Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, anytime we start a new series, you know me well enough to know that we've got to look at some of the background. We've got to figure out what's going on, the, the setting, in this case, of the sermon. That's our first point. We've got to see what is surrounding this Sermon on the Mount. And so we're starting with the setting of the sermon. You still have your Bibles open? Surely you didn't close them that quickly. So we look back to chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And it talks generally about Jesus' ministry. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. 
And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus' fame is growing. He is proclaiming, that is preaching the kingdom, and he is demonstrating his authority to do that by all of these miracles and all of these healings. And naturally, this is going to draw a crowd. Word is spreading through multiple regions here so that some were coming for the healings, some were coming to witness the show or the miracles, and certainly there must have been some who were coming for the right reason, saying to themselves, can this possibly be the Messiah? There had been 400 years of silence, as you well know. We talk about that sometimes at Christmas. The Old Testament had closed They were prophesying the coming of the Messiah, and then God went silent for 400 or so years. And then, of course, a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Christmas. Christmas is the ending of that silence where God speaks once again, no longer through Old Testament prophets, but now through his Son. And all of this came at a time when the Jews were a politically oppressed people, They had those memories of their forefathers talking about a Messiah. They had the scriptures that predicted a Messiah. And now Jesus has come along and they may be beginning to ask themselves, could this possibly be the one that we have been waiting for? Of course, another 30 years or so have now transpired since that first Easter or Christmas But given their context and their oppression by the Roman establishment, they were ready for the Messiah to come in order that he might establish an earthly kingdom. That was their mindset, that he would overthrow the Roman rulers and establish his own kingdom with them right there in Jerusalem and throughout Judea. So maybe Jesus is the one they were looking for. He certainly seemed to have the power from God. If he could do the things that we just read at the end of chapter 4, perhaps political freedom was not too far off in the future. And so early on in his ministry, the momentum is building. The word is spreading. And if enough people come, perhaps this revolution will finally be on the horizon. But as we saw a couple of weeks ago with Nathaniel, Jesus knows the heart's of men. He knew the misconceptions surrounding who he was and his kingdom. So with the crowd gathered, he begins to preach. He goes up on a mountain. We were there a few years ago, about five or six years ago now with our group. We were there at the site that they believe was the site of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's basically a large hill where Jesus could have gotten on the top And they would have sat down on the hillside so his voice would carry, because they didn't have microphones, of course. And so his voice would carry and the people could hear him. And so he sits down. That was the customary form of teaching in their day. I really debated in my own mind this week whether I should have put a chair up here with a table and sat down for the first portion of my sermon. I knew if I did that, some of you would think to yourself that something's very wrong here because you would think that's not the proper form for preaching. And why is he making changes like this in the new year? And I was afraid you might have been so distracted by that 
that you wouldn't have been listening. But my point would have been that all of this is cultural. That is, in Jesus' day, the position of authority was to sit and teach. They stood for the reading of Scripture, but they sat for the teaching of Scripture. That was the authoritative way of teaching then. I mean, we still speak of a professor holding a chair in a university. When the Pope speaks in an official capacity, he speaks what is called ex cathedra, which literally means from the chair. We know that Jesus spoke with authority regardless of the position because at the end of this sermon, we are told that the crowds recognized that he spoke with authority and not as one of their scribes because he wasn't quoting secular poets. He wasn't quoting the rabbis of the day. He was and is God, so he was speaking the very words of God. Now, as you notice, the sermon is addressed to his disciples. Not necessarily, but it says that it was his disciples that gathered, and then he starts preaching. Now, we naturally take this term to mean the 12 disciples. But we also understand that disciples is a word that is more general in nature, meaning anybody who is at the time following Jesus, whether they are doing it with full knowledge or with right motives or not. And so there is some debate here as to whether Jesus is speaking these words to specifically the 12 and the crowd is merely eavesdropping and hearing what is going on, or does he intend the message to go forth to all of the crowd? We certainly know they heard because of the verse that I just quoted a few moments ago when they recognized that he was speaking with authority. But regardless of the outcome of that, our question is, is he speaking to us? That is, do these words apply to us? You might be surprised to learn that in biblical interpretation in years past, there was a very common idea that said the Sermon on the Mount is not really for us. It is not for this age. And the reason behind that, they said, was that the ideas contained here are just too difficult. I mean, there's no way that we could do the things that are listed in these verses. And so, therefore, some concluded that these words don't even apply to this age. But if that is our conclusion, then we're going to have to throw out a lot more of the New Testament as well, aren't we? Because the majority of this is repeated elsewhere. And just because something is difficult doesn't mean we should throw it out and say that it does not apply to us. So others have taken this as a sort of code of ethics, a wonderful set of maxims to live by. But that's just as troubling, isn't it? Because the natural man cannot do the things that are contained in these verses. Let me just give you one example. We jump ahead to chapter 5 and verse 48 where Jesus says, Therefore you be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It gives you a little example about how hard this sermon is. See if you can do just that one thing. Forget about the rest of the sermon. See if you can do that one thing. Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Of course, we cannot do that. But again, that doesn't mean that this sermon does not apply to us. If it did not apply to us, then I would not be doing this series. But what it does apply to, or who it does apply to, is those of us who have a new nature in Christ. That is why the first beatitude is the first beatitude, which we'll see in just a few moments. 
This sermon lays out the characteristics or the character of a disciple of Jesus Christ. But obviously you cannot have the character of Christ without first having Christ. We cannot apply the teaching until we embrace him as Lord. Therefore, we must experience an internal change before we can ever see the external application that we're going to look at in these verses, not only today, but in the weeks and months ahead. We do not expect Christian behavior from non-Christians, or at least we shouldn't. We sometimes do expect that. We look at the world and we wonder why the world is acting like they are, and we forget that they're acting like they are because that's who they are. But here in this Sermon on the Mount, we are talking about Christian behavior, and Christian behavior can only be lived by those who are in Christ and who have the Holy Spirit within them. And therefore, we must first have the change. But when we have the change, that is that internal new nature, then we are expected to live an externally new life. And as we're going to see today and the weeks ahead, all of that means we must depend on Christ. You know, every parent comes to that stage in their parenting where a child is determined to do something for themselves. We try to help them as they are growing up, but then at some point they say to us, Daddy, I can do it myself. And we beam with pride. Because that's what we've been trying to get them to. That's the point we've been trying to lead them toward. That is, we've only been helping them because we, we knew they needed help, but ultimately we want them to be independent. But spiritually speaking, we're never independent. We never come to the place where we say, Father, I can do this myself. No, as we look at this Sermon on the Mount, we're going to discover that we must abide in Christ. We must remain with Christ because we cannot in any remote way do this by ourselves. So this Sermon on the Mount is going to push us to Christ. It's going to show us our need for him. Now you understand that what we have here, at least I hope you understand, that what we have here from Matthew is a condensed version It is a summary of what Jesus would have said on that day. These three chapters can be read in about 10 minutes. That's about the length of time that we do in our Bible reading. That is, when you do the read through the Bible every year, it's usually about three chapters. So in 10 or 15 minutes, you can read through it. So you say, well, if Jesus could preach such a memorable sermon in just 10 minutes, why do you take so long? Well, number one, I'm not Jesus. And number two, I don't think he did this in 10 minutes. I think this is a summary of all that he said on that day. Which leads us then to the Beatitudes, which are eight short statements of blessing. Actually, nine. The ninth is in verses eight, nine, and 10. And so there are multiple words there for, I'm sorry, 9, 10, and 11. That's all one. Uh, But there are multiple words for blessed here. But there are essentially nine beatitudes. Um, There are eight. I'm all confused this morning. There are eight, but the ninth blessing is part of the eighth. Okay, so I finally got that right. So uh, you see there in the first one, it starts with the kingdom of heaven. 
And then the last one in verse 10 also says the kingdom of heaven. And that's what we call an inclusio, which means the Beatitudes start with a statement on the kingdom of heaven and they end with a statement on the kingdom of heaven, which means that everything in between is also about the kingdom of heaven. So that's the setting of the sermon. Secondly, we want to look at the prospects for the promises. Clearly, there are some promises that are given in these Beatitudes, and specifically, the Beatitude we are looking at this morning, which is verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But before we can jump to the promises, which is what we like to do, we have to ask ourselves, who do these promises apply to? Because we can get in trouble in the word of God if we don't ask that question. If we just assume that a promise applies to us and accept it, then we might become discouraged and even disappointed. So who is eligible for the promise? Well, Matthew says it is those who are poor in spirit. That's why my title is Spiritual Poverty. So what does that mean? What is, it, uh, what is he saying when he says poor in spirit? In Luke's version, that's in chapter 6 of his gospel, it just says poor. But certainly we understand that neither man is speaking merely about material poverty. Certainly Matthew is not because he adds poor in spirit. If this were about material poverty and therefore it was a promise to those who are financially poor then we would be doing a disservice to them by trying to help those who are in poverty. For example, our Benevolence Committee does a great job all year long trying to help those who are in need. You come alongside of us many, many times throughout the year, especially late in the year. When Thanksgiving, we gave out bags of blessings. At Christmas, we had the Bethlehem Project where we provided uh, Christmas for multiple families. All of those things are because those families are in need. And so you are coming alongside of them and trying to help them. This past week, uh, some of our families got together for what they called Family Palooza. And they had three days of mission work. And two of those three days, they went into uh, neighborhoods in our community where as an association of Baptists in Knox County, we have centers. And they went there and helped feed people and clothe people. All of that, again, because those are folks who are in need financially. But if Matthew is saying those who are poor are in the kingdom of heaven, then we would be doing them a disservice by trying to help them in the midst of their poverty. So Matthew is not talking about physical poverty or financial poverty. Neither is he talking about being poor-spirited. In other words, he is not talking about someone who lacks drive, or someone who has no enthusiasm for life. He is not saying that we need to be down on ourselves. You probably know people who are always negative about themselves. And so what they need, you think, is some healthy self-esteem or confidence. But that's not being poor in spirit. Rather, someone who's always down on themselves is someone who has forgotten that they are made in the image of God and therefore are of great value to God. After all, Jesus died for us, telling us a great deal about the value that God places upon our lives. So it's not feeling sorry for ourselves. It is not being reserved or shy in personality. What it means is spiritual poverty, and that's why that is my title. 
Jesus is saying that only those who recognize their spiritual poverty will receive the promises that this verse has to offer. Furthermore, this first beatitude is the first beatitude because the rest of the Sermon on the Mount hinges upon this truth. The word for poor here is not the normal word for poor. This was a word that really goes beyond that, and it's a word that is used to refer to someone who is totally destitute. A person who is crouched in a corner begging. In our day and age, it might look like someone who is standing at the street corner or at the traffic light with a sign, and they are begging for someone to give them money because that's the only resources they have, or at least presumably. Or it's someone who is leaning against a building downtown, waiting on those to pass by to give them a little something. Some commentators like to translate this as beggarly poor. I mean, this is such a person who is totally destitute that their survival depends upon another. They cannot make it without someone else giving them something. And spiritually speaking, that's exactly what we're talking about. In fact, I'm not commenting on whether or not you should help those that you come across in the situations that I just mentioned, but it would be helpful for you when you see someone like that to think, that's the way I am spiritually. I am beggarly poor when it comes to the spiritual life because I must have Christ. It is a recognition on our part that we are such sinners that left to ourselves, we are worthless before God, unless God does something for us, which is exactly what he's done. So poor in spirit is sort of the opposite of being rich in pride. We hear a lot these days about pride, how to be successful in life, how to do better in the new year. That's what resolutions and goals are all about. I mean, if you go to a bookstore, you are sure to find a, a host of self-help books. In fact, there's a whole section, and you can go in Christian bookstores and find the same thing. That all you really need to do is add Jesus to a little bit of your life so that you can accomplish what you want to accomplish. Now, before there can be genuine conversion, however, there must first be deep conviction. Before the gospel can pull us up, the gospel must bring us down. And the reason so many Christians do not appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ is directly related to this point. We've never seen our own spiritual poverty. We've never seen the depths of our depression. You know what you have to do in evangelism in our part of the country? You have to first convince someone that they're lost. Because most people in our part of the country do not believe they're lost. Everybody's saved. Everybody's made a decision for Christ. Everybody is a member of a church somewhere. They may not go. They may not exhibit any kind of fruit, but they've got some testimony, some reference to some time in the past where they had some sort of encounter with God, and as a result, they must be right with God. It's no wonder then that many of them never bother to come to church, and it's no wonder then that many who do come to church never really gather with much joy because we've never experienced the depth of our spiritual poverty. We've never really known what it is to be forgiven and therefore our joy in being forgiven is often very shallow. Listen to the words of David in Psalm 32 after he had experienced not only great sin, but great forgiveness. 
He says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You can hear the joy in David's words, right? How blessed is the man whose sins are covered. How blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. You can hear him talking about joy because that is the experience of his heart. The Bible tells us that even our righteousness, even our good deeds are like filthy rags before God. I realize that's not, that's not a very popular message today. In fact, some would conclude it's a very negative way to approach Christianity, but that's really a short-sighted view because it's actually a very positive approach. Because again, we will not experience the heights of joy unless we first know the depths of our poverty in spirit. And by the way, that needs to be an ongoing reality. Jesus is, of course, primarily talking about salvation here, but the principle continues in the process of sanctification. Poverty of spirit is not a one-time mentality that is needed for salvation and replaced again by our own self-sufficiency. That's the way we operate when we turn to God only when there's a crisis. That's the way we operate when we turn to God only when we know there's nothing we can do. That's the way we operate when we go about our lives thinking we are independent and can do it ourselves with self-confidence unless something major happens. But we need to understand that we need God all of the time, a constant reminder that we must be filled by the Holy Spirit of God. Again, Jesus said, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, apart from me, you can do nothing. A scholar, a commentator from years ago wrote these words, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That is spiritual poverty. Seeing ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior, but not stopping there, going forward then to see what a great Savior we have. I'm not talking about walking around all the time with our head held down like Charlie Brown used to do. I'm talking about understanding that we are spiritually poor, but we have a great Savior who is Christ the Lord. Which leads to our last point, the point we've been waiting for, and that is the promises to the poor. There are two promises here in this beatitude. The first is a promise of satisfaction now. It is found in the word blessed. Some translations use the word happy. But I don't think that's a great translation primarily because our understanding of the word happiness. Happiness, according to our definitions, depends upon our circumstances. I'm happy when... And then we fill in the blank as to what's going on in our lives. But blessed here cannot possibly mean that because after all, the, the second one, the one we will look at next week, blessed are those who mourn. So it can't be happiness. It must mean something else. Blessed is a word that originally referred to consecration. That's why the elements of the Lord's Supper were referred to as the blessed sacraments. It's why we call a prayer before a meal a blessing. 
because we are consecrating ourselves and the food that we are about to eat to God. Later, this word came to mean to speak well of or to eulogize like we might do at a funeral. But in these verses, the word speaks of a deep spiritual satisfaction. It is not happiness that is dependent upon external stimuli. Rather, it is an internal peace that can rest content no matter what is happening. And the word also conveys the idea of being accepted or approved by God. So this is not a superficial or uh, subjective, I should say, feeling. This is an objective reality that God is giving us the promise that when we are spiritually poor, we will be blessed. That means we will be counted as satisfied in Christ and accepted by him. And as a result, our joy can be full in the midst of even the most depressing of events. So we're not talking about temporary happiness. We're not talking about superficial moments of joy. We are talking about a deep satisfaction that comes only when knowing that God in Christ has saved us from the depths of our sins. And then he says, you're blessed. That's satisfaction now, but he goes on to say, not only satisfaction now, but security forever. That's in that last phrase there, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we talked about that phrase, and it's near synonym, kingdom of God, in our parable series. But he is not talking here about the universal reign of God. Rather, he is talking about the specific area of salvation, Those who recognize their spiritual poverty and turn to Christ and find their solution and satisfaction in him are therefore secure forever. We often think of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as future. But we talked about that in our parable series. There is a present reality to it and also a future promise. There is an already aspect to our salvation that we are experiencing now and a not yet that we await a future fulfillment. But the security is there. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual poverty is necessary for heavenly residence. You know, there's a, there's a statement Jesus made on one occasion that's, I think, one of the most haunting statements he made, probably the most haunting where people came to him and said, well, didn't we do this? And didn't we do that in your name? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Which begs the question, what does it take to be part of the kingdom of God? It takes spiritual poverty. That's the way the Beatitudes begin. Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are several parables that Jesus told that apply here. He tells one about the treasure hidden in the field. He says the man finds the treasure, but he reburies it because the field is not his. And I know that brings up all kinds of ethical questions for us, but that's not the point this morning. The point of that parable is the value of the kingdom. He goes and sells everything he has so that he can buy that field because of the value of that treasure. And so is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. It is the most valuable thing such that it should be our greatest priority. And in order for that to happen, we must wrestle with the depths of our sin. 
that we are poor, beggarly sinners in need of a Savior. This first beatitude is really the gospel of justification by faith in a nutshell. How can we be part of the kingdom of God? We must recognize that we are sinners, but there is a great Savior who can save us from that sin. On another occasion, Jesus went, or Jesus tells a story about two men who go to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, and he basically looks down his nose at the other man who is there to pray. And then he recites to God in his prayer all of the good things that he's done. I thank you that I'm not like that guy, because I do this, this, and that. But the other man won't even hardly look up, and he just keeps saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says at the end of that parable, which one of these two men went home justified? Which one of these two men went home right with God? And the answer, of course, is the man who recognized his sin and cried out to God for a savior. That's what spiritual poverty is. So my question for you is, will you go home justified? Will you go home recognizing your spiritual poverty and in turn, the greatness of God's salvation. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that even though we are spiritual beggars, that we certainly cannot save ourselves, you have provided a way that we might be saved. Lord, I pray that we would see our sin, not that we would go around depressed or despondent, but we, are, we would see our sin because only in seeing the depths of our sin will we ever come to any kind of realization of the greatness of Jesus, our Savior. So I pray that we would see how poor we are spiritually, but how great you are in saving us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.